throughout the coronavirus pandemic, I have been continually inspired by so many communities that have banded together to help battle this deadly virus. Dr. John Klein from Louisville, Kentucky is our next guest who exemplifies a community leader with the tenacity and dedication to servitude that we need during these unprecedented times. Calling the University of Louisville his professional home, Dr. Klein has been instrumental in helping the recently formed Co-Immunity Project become a force of good in the fight against the pandemic. The purpose of the Co-Immunity Project is to study COVID-19 infection and immunity among healthcare workers and in the broader Louisville community and attract the movement of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in Louisville's waste and surface water. These findings and understanding from the Co-Immunity Project will help us restart the economy, return to work and school safely, and ease the burden of worry that uncertainty creates. Join us in our latest expert coronavirus update to learn from Dr. Klein as we continue to work together to overcome the most daunting public health challenge of our lifetimes. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Klein, thank you for the opportunity to spend time together on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Well, John, I was recently made aware of your groundbreaking and important work happening in Louisville, Kentucky, by way of one of your our listeners and one of your key community members in Louisville, Andrew Steen. As you know, Andrew is also a health tech entrepreneur and somebody that is a dear friend of mine and is a key leader in our industry and community. Andrew nominated you to be a guest on the podcast in order to share with our global community how your city has come together to launch and implement the Co-Immunity Project in order to help combat COVID-19. But before we dive in and learn about all of this important work and mission happening in Louisville, Kentucky, and all of your work with your colleagues, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment and visit passionatepioneers.com in order to share your ideas and feedback. Simply scroll to the comment section at the bottom of each posted episode. And lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, John, we have a lot to cover today. As I mentioned, a lot of great things happening at the University of Louisville in the city of Louisville, Kentucky, with some of your other stakeholders for the Community Project. But before we go there, John, can you give us a little bit of your backstory, all the wonderful work that you've been doing with your career that is also now helping fuel the Co-Immunity Project? Well, happy to. In terms of my clinical background, I'm a nephrologist, kidney specialist who's taken care of people for many years. And so I continue to be a physician. As a scientist, my interest in immunity turned to the use of proteomics before there actually really was a field known as proteomics or in the first year. So in 1997, I began to receive training in the use of mass spectrometry in human specimens. After a short period of time, I uh, was able to 
convinced the funding agencies that this was a worthwhile thing to discover biomarkers of kidney disease. And for the last several years, my research has focused on using mass spectrometry and proteomic techniques to identify disease biomarkers and prognostic factors in kidney diseases of childhood that are primarily autoimmune. So that's my research interest. And then finally, I wear a third hat which is to be vice dean of research and really the principal administrator of research for the School of Medicine here at the University of Louisville. That is probably why I became involved in the group that was forming the Co-Immunity Project. And let's talk about how it got you know, off the ground. I love the backstories of how projects have come to be in the midst of this crisis that has now you know, been branded the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, so many community leaders and communities across the world quickly acted and launched projects like a community project. How did it even come together in the first place? I know our community is very interested in how people move so fast to answer the call amidst crisis, just like the pandemic that we're currently in. How did this all come together in the first place? And then we'll talk about what you guys are up to. A lot of the credit belongs to two other individuals, and one is Kenneth Palmer, who's the director of our Center for Predictive Medicine. He directs our regional biocontainment laboratory, which is a BCL3 lab, which allows us to study and culture and maintain pretty dangerous organisms. He, in January, as soon as the organism, or as soon as the coronavirus sequence was published, he recognized what the danger was. And so that was, I guess, around January 5th, the sequence is published. By February 5th, he had requested aliquots of the virus itself from the CDC. And shortly thereafter, because we have this facility, we were able to begin to do work with the virus itself. That also, his group was able, we had to run a PCR test while the CDC was sort of going back and forth as to testing and how it should be done and which method should be used or which protocol should be used. We actually thank. Ken Palmer and his colleagues, we actually had a test up and running in February. Somewhere in early March, another character comes into the story, and that's our Dr. Aruni Bhatnagar, who's the head of our Environ Institute. And Aruni had the concept originally that we should do initially a study of healthcare workers. And the idea was that healthcare workers were coming under immense stress from the virus and we were most concerned about protecting the healthcare system to prevent its possible collapse. And so the idea was, how can we get a handle on the prevalence of this viral infection among healthcare workers so as to protect the healthcare system? And that happened, and you mentioned this all came together earlier in 2020. And how fast did everybody respond to this? Was it well received by the city, by the community? Because you do message a bit that Louisville is ideally suited to develop and execute against an innovative project just like this. Was this well-received out the gates? Oh, it absolutely was. You know, some of the things that you have to understand is that the same lab that was going to do the study for about six to eight weeks was the only lab that was doing clinical testing in the hospitals. So we had tremendous cooperation from our hospital partners, both the university healthcare system as well as the other healthcare systems in the city. And, you know, there's this old saying about Louisville. It's big enough so that you can see problems on a large scale, but it's small enough that you can get your hands around those problems. I think this is probably an example of that. That's not always the case, but in this case, 
In this instance, I think it was. So we immediately had partnerships with the hospital corporations. We also have a local healthcare CEO council. Louisville is home to the largest cluster of long-term care companies in the country. And so they have formed, along with our startup community, a a healthcare CEO council. And so we had buy-in from them, which was very important as well. And then I think I got brought in because studying for research, frequently I know where money is. It was not because of my brilliant science that I was initially asked to join the group. It was that I had relationships with local foundations that might be able to support us because at that point in time, we had no federal funding. We had no CARES Act money. And so as it turned out, I was able to obtain funding. The group was able to obtain funding from three local foundations. The Jewish Heritage Fund for Excellence was the first to join in the Owsley uh, Brown Family Fund, and then finally the James Graham Brown Foundation. And we were able to raise initially about five and three quarter million dollars once the CARES Act money kicked in as well. That gave us a good start. And so in the early days, we began to focus on healthcare workers. But as we'll talk about shortly, this eventually brought it out to do a cross-sectional analysis of the metro community. Well, let's go there. I know you've spent your career in academics, but I'm going to flip the script a bit because you mentioned the startup community uh, being involved. So I'm going to ask you if you can give us that elevator pitch like a bunch of startups do around what they're building. Give us that view of what the co-community project is. Give us that elevator pitch of what you guys started with, where you're at, and then we'll talk about where this is going, what we can be thinking about across the country to learn from all of you but let's first start with that elevator pitch. What is the Co-Immunity Project? Co-Immunity Project is a project that will define the prevalence of SARS coronavirus 2 in the Louisville community. And by describing those who have active infections as well as those who have antibody, we can better understand the distribution throughout the community and the geography of the community. That lets us know whether particular populations, such as our Black or Latinx population, are at greater risk. It also tells us where we are in terms of the progress towards what is frequently called herd immunity. And then finally, a part of the project is wastewater analysis, which we think is a leading indicator of where surges will occur and then also will be used to define vaccine deserts in the future. Wow. And where does everything stand current state? Here we are, November of 2020. A lot has happened. It feels like we've packed several years into just 2020. A lot has happened since this got off the ground earlier in 2020. Where do things currently stand for you and your colleagues and the Co-Immunity Project? Well, in terms of the data we're producing, it's been really instructive. And now the Metro government is plugged in and using our data to guide policy decisions. So we really have a hand-in-glove relationship with the local Department of Health and Wellness and with the mayor's office. We've done two rounds of healthcare worker assays. The first round was done in May, and we tested 1,372 individuals. We found the PCR positivity, so the active infections, was only about 0.14% in the healthcare workers, and the antibodies were only 1%. This is back in May when there had been a surge. And so we concluded from that, and I think we're correct, is that first of all, we were a low intensity state. We didn't resemble 
New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut at that point in time, or even Florida. And then the second thing that we concluded is that when healthcare workers have PPE and are trained properly, that actually at that point in time, the prevalence of the disease was quite low. Then in July, we repeated another 1,372 healthcare workers. In this case, this is a new cohort. We saw that the PCR positivity had gone from 0.14 to 0.45%, so more than tripled. And we saw that the antibody levels had doubled. On the surface, it looks really concerning, but truthfully, when we compared it to what we saw in the general population, it was still much lower, again, suggesting even though these individuals have very high risk exposures to coronavirus, that the PPE and the other precautions were working reasonably well. So that's the healthcare worker story. The cross-sectional analysis, we partnered with Westat and used a variety of marketing tools to persuade people to volunteer to be subjects in the co-immunity project. And the first round was performed in mid-June. Again, around 2,200 people were tested, and we saw that only 0.05% in mid-June had active infection, and 4% had antibody positivity, showing that they had previous illness. Uh, so that was surprising because, you know, most cities have these aggregated data from all of their testing sites, but none of that is adjusted for population and geographic distribution. And so what we were able to add, the value that we added to those dashboards that you see in every city and every state is an understanding of the geographic distribution of the virus and also an understanding of which communities are specifically, which neighborhoods are being affected by zip code. And it turned out that in that first analysis that we actually saw an estimated four to six times higher prevalence in the city than could be determined by simply looking at the aggregated testing center data. So that was the first piece of information I think that was useful to policy planners is that this was much more prevalent than they had realized at that point in time. They had suspected it, but this was the data that gave them some assurance. And then we repeated the study again in September, and then we're in the middle of our third round now. And in September, we saw that the PCR positivity had again increased fairly dramatically fourfold. It was still only 0.2%, but that's a clear trend, even those low numbers. And the antibody level that we detected was about the same because antibody levels rise and fall after infection rates. I can tell you that we're in the middle of a surge here. And while we won't complete the analysis until next week, I fully expect it to be markedly greater prevalence within the community. That's the first two parts of the study, and let's talk a little bit about what that means. Yeah, please do. And, you know, one area I also want to focus in in talking about what all this means, John, is this friction, and it's an understandable one, but this friction around public health versus a healthy economy or the battle between or the perceived battle between. So maybe we can talk about what all that means, but then also if you could, you know, layer on top, what can we learn from this? in regards to opening and sustaining economic activity within our communities, obviously Louisville being the focal point here for your work, but more broadly on how we can be thinking about all of that for our communities across the nation as well. Well, I think it's a cautionary tale. What you can see is while these were very low levels of antibody and PCR testing positivity, 
the, the trend was clear. And during this period of time, the governor of Kentucky, who I think has by and large done a good job, was beginning to loosen the restrictions that had come out of the March shutdown. And in some ways, in retrospect, if we looked at these very small numbers, there was, you know, a yellow or red warning sign flashing there. It, since then, we've gone back to having restaurants with indoor dining. I think it's either 25% or maybe slightly higher indoor capacity. Our bars are open again. And most importantly, in addition to that, we've gone through a whole series of holidays. And we can see that the surges follow 14 to 21 days after each holiday. And so that small family-driven or friend-driven community spread is a big part of this in addition to the restaurants and, and bars. So now what we find ourselves is, you know, in the state and in the city, we have positivity rates that are six to eight in the city and in the state. And we see really true exponential growth in the cases here. And then in Louisville, we're on the border with Southern Indiana. We're separated only by the Ohio River. Indiana truly seeing remarkable growth rates because they, for all intents and purposes, opened up really all of their economy. You know, I'm not a policymaker. I'm not an epidemiologist, but as a scientist and someone who looks critically at data, what I take away from this is that this is a false discussion, the idea that we have to balance somehow the opening of the economy with the containment of the virus. My conclusion from these events is that the only way we have the economy healthy is by controlling the virus. And if that requires temporary and selective shutdowns, well, that's the only way that we get back to a healthy economy. And it's very good perspective. And it's a subject that we're toiling with as a nation. We're breaking records, global records, literally every day right now here in November and then going to be heading into December. And it's frightening and it's shocking. And I know some of our community members may not like hearing this, but it's just what I perceive and see as the truth is that it's part of our culture that, you know, you can't hold me down. These are my rights. And so, John, I appreciate that perspective because we can't lose sight of it. The virus doesn't care about politics. It doesn't care about our economy. And it has to be up to us as leaders to really think through how we move forward. And with this work that you guys are spearheading, hopefully, as you mentioned, there's a cautionary tale in there that we can all learn from. Well, I think we're pretty fully aligned on that one. You know, I love capitalism and it's given me a great standard of living. And so that's why I think that in order to save it, we've got to control the virus. And hopefully we'll be doing that and making the right decisions in the coming weeks and months. Let's talk a little bit about the coming weeks and months as well, John, and even beyond that for the Co-Immunity Project. Where do you see you and your colleagues, the work around the project? Where does this go into the future, right? Here we are. We're starting to hear about a vaccine closely on the horizon. We're seeing other, uh, you know, antibody therapies, other types of uh, opportunities to really confront and battle this virus. But where do you see your work heading into the future with this project? And does that work go beyond the pandemic once we, I guess, have this more fully under control? Maybe you can share a little bit of that future state with us. Sure, happy to. I think the Co-Immunity Project has sort of what we would call tactical and strategic goals that the tactical goals, I would say, are limited to the next 120 days. 
And so we want to continue to assess the prevalence of the virus in the community. But we also want to begin to be able to predict surges on a neighborhood basis that allows us hopefully to target containment measures and mitigation measures on a neighborhood basis. And so that's the third phase of the community project, and maybe the most exciting of them all. And that is wastewater detection of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We're working very closely with our metropolitan sewer district. And this effort is led by Ted Smith, interesting guy, has, a, I think, a PhD in neuroscience originally, and then ended up in the tech world as an entrepreneur, and then re-entered the university life about two years ago as part of this Environ Institute. And so Ted has been working really hard to work out the methods to detect the virus in sewage from different treatment centers and different sewage sheds in the city, which would allow us to tell on a geographic sort of a spatial distribution where viruses are flaring. And it sounds kind of straightforward. You do a PCR test on a bunch of slop that you pull out of a, a water treatment center uh, or a sewage treatment center, but it's a really challenging scientific problem. We've had postdocs literally working all night long on this. And we think we're just about ready to crack it open, as are a lot of groups in the country. So we're, we're not the only ones doing this. But the data is really beginning to track the surges in PCR positivity. And so our bottom line is that it's beginning to be our, it's close to being useful to guide our policy. And this is actually the only way that, that my lab is going to get scientifically involved in the co-immunity project is that we also are, have a project to use mass spectrometry to detect the viral proteins, so spike protein and, and nucleocapsid proteins in the water treatment uh, effluent. This is a really interesting technique to tell you where surges are occurring on a geographic basis, but strategically going forward, when we have a vaccine that is approved, which I believe is you know just days away from the news that I'm reading, there are gonna be real challenges in providing that vaccine to all communities. And, and some of our health equity issues are going to come into play. Some of the historical suspicion of the medical and scientific establishment are going to come into play as it's to be expected. So one of the things that wastewater detection can do it can also begin to be interpreted as to which neighborhoods are not embracing vaccination. And so that we can begin to have a conversation with those neighborhoods. And some of them may be based on prior history, either specific ethnic or other minorities. It may simply be geographic that groups within an area of the city simply say, you know, heck no, I'm not getting that thing. And we're going to have to engage them in a conversation because we've got to get as high a percentage of vaccinated population as we can in order to really cut down the transmission of this virus. Sounds like a very exciting and important roadmap ahead for you and your colleagues and looking forward to staying abreast and following it and being able to learn from it. And speaking of that, John, for our community, where can we learn more? Where are there some touch points online, whether it be social media handles, websites, personal links for you or otherwise, where can we learn more about all of this work with the Co-Immunity Project? 
Well, we have a pretty good webpage, I think. And so you can look at that webpage at coco-immunityproject, that's all one word, immunityproject.com. And there are ways to access it and also see what the latest news is on the project and also to see the data as we make them public. I have a Twitter account and I'm pretty active on that. And that's J-O-N-B-K-L-E-I-N, all one term. And then the Environ Institute also has a Twitter handle and people should uh, look that up and follow them. Their work is absolutely fascinating work here at the university. They have a long-term project called the Green Heart Project, where they're determining if greening an entire neighborhood with mature trees alters cardiovascular outcomes. So I think they're well worth a follow, not only for their involvement in the community project, but also in the Green Heart Project. That's a very cool project as well. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely have to stay close to that. And of course, for our community, you'll be able to find all of those touch points in the episode notes. So in your favorite podcast player, simply scroll down and be able to click on through. Additionally, we'll leave all of those contact points over at passionatepioneers.com, our free global community. And there's be opportunity for you to leave comments and feedback and ideas for Dr. Klein and his team and for everybody else affiliated with the co-immunity project. Well, for now, John, thank you for being with us and, and sharing what's happening within your community and all of the stakeholders there to really continue to push forward this initiative that is the Co-Immunity Project. A big fan of the work. I'm grateful again for our mutual friend, Andy, for bringing us together today. So Andy, thank you for that. It's been a wonderful conversation. But for now, John, I know you're busy. Thank you again for being with us today, for sharing this. Do keep us updated and we look forward to continuing to cheer you on and being a part of the Co-Immunity Project. Thank you so much. Thank you and thank your community. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.